HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history here on Heritage Radio Network. And, you know, it's often said that we eat with our eyes, but it's also what we read or hear. For instance, if one's passing by and reading different menus and they happen to see squash and tomato casserole, hmm, but if they happen to see ratatouille, Mmm, they might decide to eat at that restaurant. So much of what we eat is really shaped by attitude and imagination and the power of language. My guest today has actually delved into those food words and has given us a wonderful culinary history through the English language and the words that we choose to represent food. Her name is Ina Lipkowitz, and her book is Words to Eat By, Five Foods and the Culinary History of the English Language. Welcome, Ina. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, 
interesting. I I happen to find this a very delightful book. One might be turned, you know, say, oh, I have to read about the foods, the words of food, rather than reading about the food and the recipes. But this, you have done such a marvelous job that it made me hungry reading the book. Oh, thank you very much. And you, I have to say, I love your example, squash and tomato casserole. I never thought of a ratatouille right. as squash and tomato casserole, but you, you pinned the nail, hit the nail right on the head. And, and this, so much of what you write about, it just, the, as someone said, the, the words leap off the page, and the food leaps off the page in the, in the words in which you choose. And Ken Albala has called it an etymological feast. And indeed <laughs> it is, it is. But tell me, what really inspired you to look at culinary history through the words? Oh, so many things. Uh, how shall I start? I should say that um, I've always been a foodie at heart, always been a, a, in love with all aspects of food, but my training is actually in comparative literature. That's right, and I, fa- I, I failed to mention languages. that. Yes, Ina teaches um, English literature and biblical studies at MIT, right? That's right, and my doctoral work was actually in comparative literature, which means I had to study a lot of languages. And I very, very quickly learned that it's a tricky business translating one word into another language. You may get the reference exactly right, but you've lost everything else, mm. all associations, all attitudes, the history of the word. Uh, once I remember teaching a class and I gave seven or eight translations of one poem and nobody knew they were t- translations of the same poem. They thought they were different poems. Totally different. Huh? Totally, totally different. Totally different. Huh. Completely different. One French sonnet, seven or eight translations. So in my day job, I work with languages and literature. Mm-hmm. However, at night, I read about, dream about, talk about food. <laughs> and then it dawned on me these are not separate enterprises. As you said in your introduction, when you read a menu, when you go to the supermarket, when you go out for lunch to Aubonpin, to Panera, wherever you may go. And you, you just said two words that evoke, yeah, you just said two words. names, right, two names that, that evoke much better images than sandwich shop, right? Right. Aubonpin, <laughs> I know people who don't even know how to pronounce it. They call it the pain shop, pain, because <laughs> right. the French, P-A-I-N, they don't know French, but they know that somehow it sounds fancier. They can't even tell you what it means, but it looks fancy. It wouldn't work the same way if it were called good bread. That's right. Well, in the introduction to your book, you gave a marvelous example that kind of thrust us into the, the, the rest of the, um, the writing, and that was a description of a feast in the 1800s by Charles Lamb. You want to talk about that a little bit and how that, how that relates to what we're talking about here in, in the words and how they, how, our attitude towards them. He sure. Went... Well, actually, the feast that you're talking about, I combined two episodes. One is a uh, feast that I myself indulged in, not in the yes, 18th that's century, right. that's but right. a few years ago, <laughs> in North Carolina. It was a pig picking, and anybody who's lived in the South or knows about the South knows that pig pickings are big deals down there. Uh, they don't call what we do barbecue. We grill burgers and hot dogs. Down there, a barbecue is a slow-cooked, usually pig. Uh, Charles Lamb had written an essay some 200 years earlier uh, called A Dissertation on Roast Pig, in which he made up this wonderful story about the first time anybody thought to roast the pig. And it's a wonderful story about a Chinese swineherd who is not paying attention and burns down the family farm, is terrified what his father will do, and in his horror, trying to see if any of the little piglets are still alive, he puts his burnt fingers to his mouth and tastes roast pork. 
Now, that, that, that evokes not such a pleasant image, but... <laughs> it doesn't, but roast pork. I mean, a pork roast sounds Absolutely. awfully nice. Absolutely. Well, it's I, all, so yeah. I put those two episodes together because pig turned to pork in Lamb's essay. It's awkward that his name is Lamb in that case. Because That's correct. Um, but the pig picking made it so clear to me the difference between pork, which to me suggested a civilized meal, and a pig picking. It's a whole big animal. And I realized it may be the same entity, but the word made me feel so differently. That's right. And that was my entree into the book. That's right. As you say, and, and I have repeated this in describing when people ask me, what is the show going to be about? And, and, and you gave the same example once again. I said, well, for instance, do you eat flesh or do you eat meat? <laughs> right? so, but that, that was, as you describe later, a, a, a bit of a semantic shift, and we'll get to that a little bit later. For this book, you chose five foods, the, the words for five foods. Now, how, I mean, that's, and that's basically what, you know, what your subtitle is, Five Foods and the Culinary History of the English Language. Um, describe that, why you chose those five foods and which, they, which ones they are. Well, the, the shortest answer is I had in mind the Surgeon General's Food Pyramid mm-hmm. and the categories. And I think now Michelle Obama has replaced it with a dinner plate. So yes. Maybe you still have the five pie wedges on her dinner plate. But basically at the bottom of the pyramid you had fruits and vegetables, and then you have protein, or no, cereal, and then you have protein, and at the top fats and sweets sparingly. I missed one? Uh, dairy. Dairy, right. So my five foods try to, uh, each one stands in for one of those groups. So apples for fruit, leeks for vegetables, um, let's see, bread for the milk. cereal group, right. meat for protein, and dairy, milk, ob- milk right. for dairy. Sweets and fat I didn't include. They sort of get in there mm-hmm. through the back door and occasionally. That's the short answer. The other answer, however, is that each of the words, apple, leek, milk, meat, bread, is an old English word in a culinary language that is so dominated by French and Italian words. Cuisine is French. Um, beef is French. Uh, so many words come from French or from Italian. And yet these five words are the oldest English words we have. They have been eaten the longest. The words are the oldest. And we have never, we being English speakers, We've never been willing to swap them out for another. Even oh. as we changed some of our words and took the French ones, right. we kept these five. And that intrigued me. I wanted to know why these five exerted such power over us. And that's what I explore in the book. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that those, and they are very much um, kind of the Germanic origins, I guess. Most all those words are they now? Oh, no, the leak is not. Um, no, it is. Absolutely. It is. Okay. And sometimes yes. I shy away from history because of my academic background. People say, oh, don't go into that. But I will go into it. You're absolutely yeah. right. The Old English words, Old English is another name for Germanic. Mm-hmm. These are all Germanic words that predate the Norman conquest of 1066. It was, during, it was after the Norman conquest, the Normans were from France. They brought over French cuisine. They brought over French language. They took over the kitchens because they were wealthy. They had power. They put their chefs in the kitchens, and food became French. But all those people, those Germanic, Angles, and Saxons who had been living on that island already for six, 700 years had been calling food something, had been eating, and those foods were no longer fancy, but they were what fed the nation, and those words have remained with us. And those foods, by and large, 
have remained with us as staples to this day. That's right. I, I found it fascinating that, um, that you even go through and, 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 and touch on the history of, of the types of foods and um, the barbarians were eating, of course, you know, lots of meat and mm-hmm. um, not so many vegetables. And, no. Yeah, and yet, and no, then, they're not known for the Mediterranean diet up there right. with all those vegetables. Not, not a thing that factors. And the milk and the milk drinkers as opposed to, um, and that brings us to turning some of these foods or these food groups into other foods, you know, like milk being turned into cheese and, and, uh, and the, um, the fruit being turned into uh, cooked varieties. And, all sorts of wonderful preparations, yes. Yeah. But again, that's a big distinction. I discovered these things. The more I researched, the more I started realizing that there are different attitudes about food and different ideas of what people are supposed to do to the things that they eat. So that in the ancient Mediterranean world, it was very much believed that you should transform what you find in nature. You know, what's in nature is okay for the animals, but a real person, a real civilized, refined person, works it, knows Mm -hmm. how to change it. Mm -hmm. So the ancient Romans were brilliant agriculturalists. And they grafted things, and they hybridized things. They transformed weeds into vegetables. They changed a lot of the vegetables that we eat today are really still the products of their expertise. Mm. And, of course, fire so, separated us all, right? So, yes, and up north, however, people may have heard of the, you know, the barbarian hunter-gatherers. You didn't transform weeds. You just ate them. Right. Or the animal, you didn't, you didn't submit to some fancy, elaborate preparation, you just sort of ripped off a haunch and roasted it. You pit-boiled it, something like that. And it wasn't considered um, secondary. That was your attitude about nature was you eat from it. You don't transform it. So when these two cultures came into contact, lots of tension, lots of friction (laughs) was the result. Right. right. Well, you tell a lovely story about... um Fruits and uh, how fruits are so much more of the, the happy, pleasant presentation as opposed to vegetables, and in fact, then um, fruit—the word "fruit" itself—and and what where that comes from. Mm-hmm. Well, the word "fruit" is—it's fun. One, it's a Latin root, and it's interesting because "apple," as you noted before, is Old English, but the general word for the class is "fruit." Came with the Romans. Same thing with vegetable. Vegetable comes from a Latin root. In case of fruit, it traces back to an old Latin word, a verb, fruor, which meant to enjoy or mm. to have pleasure. Mm. So it, to me, is a lovely thing, yeah. that fruit, which is so delicious. The mm. very word is a happy word, and I find that terribly appropriate. Yeah, indeed. It's wonderful. Well, it, it just it, it amazes me, the words that uh, stayed, as you say, stayed. Some are, we, we adopted from the um, Romance languages and the others from the Germanic languages, um, and, and, why, and why that came to be. And I did note that you said that beet, bean, and leek are the mm-hmm. only vegetables that are not Roman, lang- Roman origin words. Or others from the New World. Once, once Columbus and once the discovery of the New World, the ones that you mentioned, for uh-huh. instance, uh, in the Ratatouille example that you opened with, tomatoes were, oh, came, on, came to Europe from the New World. They didn't exist. Imagine Italian food without the tomato. Right. But it didn't have the tomato for a very long time. 
squash as well came from the New World, and these were very difficult to pronounce words. So there are a whole class of vegetables. Well, then we had yeah, we had the whole other language that those are that those um, evolved. Absolutely, the potato, the tomato, chocolate, squash. All of those are New World vegetables. Mm -hmm. But yes, in the book, I did um, I do write that the beet, the bean, and the leek do not come from Latin, and so many of our other vegetable words do. They're not, when you think about it, the most beautiful-sounding words. They're not radicchio, oh. or they're not, um, oh, what, Whoa. think of an Italian? <laughs> no, no they're, they're monosyllabic, mm-hmm. one syllable. Many Germanic words tend to be one syllable as compared to a much more poetic, rhyming-sounding Italian or Italian word, for instance. So beet, bean, and leek. Leek, people often ask me, why did you include leek? Apples I get, bread, meat, but leeks? You know, what's the big deal about a leek? Well, we're going to talk more about leeks in just a moment. We're going to take a little break, and and I want to hear some of those stories about leeks because that is indeed very interesting. So when we come back, we'll hear more about leeks. For you like this and the other While I go for this and that Goodness knows what the end will be Oh, I don't know where I'm at It looks as if to will never be one Something must be done You say either I say either You say neither And I say neither Either either And either neither Let's call the whole thing off Yes, you like potato I like potato, you like tomato, I like tomato, potato, potato, tomato, tomato, let's call the whole thing off, but oh, if we call the whole thing off, then we must part, and oh, if we ever part, then that might break my heart, so like pajamas, I like pajamas, I wear pajamas, give up pajamas, for we know we need each other, so we better call the calling of off. We're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Ina Lipkowitz, who has written a charming book called Words to Eat By, Five Foods, and the Culinary History of the English Language. And, Ina, we were talking about leeks, why you, why you chose leeks to represent the vegetable group in the history of, of words and, and, and food and food words. So what, you know, people said, why did you choose leeks? I know, that's the question I often get. As I said, they get milk, they get meat, but leeks, you know, who cooks with leeks so much? I think they're having a bit of a comeback, but the point is that (laughs) there was a time when the leek was the primary member. It's the allium family. Mm -hmm. The allium family includes onions and leeks and shallots and chives, scallions, and all sorts of other, and garlic, for instance. People don't often realize that garlic, this is interesting, is named after the leek. That's that lick in garlic is from leek. It's also an old English word. And what's so interesting about that is, think, there was a time when people named other alliums after the leek. This was before the onion word came over to Britain. Mm-hmm. Onion is French. And once the onion came over, it took over. The leek was eclipsed, both mm. in terms of language and substance. 
Julia Child, you know, interesting. She's called the French chef. She was once quoted as saying, it's hard to imagine civilization without the onion. It's true. Mm -hmm. But before the French came to Britain, it was impossible to conceive of food without the leek. That was the member of the allium that grew readily. It grew like a weed. In fact, it was often considered a weed. Well, and its origins are, are, are a little are debated as, as well. I mean, where they, find, where they first found the leek, indeed. Absolutely. Right. The onion family grows the world over. It's mm-hmm. a very easy-growing plant. The Romans, I said earlier, were so good at, at transforming what they found in nature, and there were such great agriculturalists, and they took the original leek that looked sort of weedy, slender, and they transformed it into what we recognize today. The leaves are thicker, it's sweeter, it ripens faster. Uh, They transformed it. So when they came up, the Roman Empire went all over the place. When they came up to Britain and saw what people were eating, it looked like a weed, but it was actually related to what they had transformed into the leek. Hmm. Uh, The point being that the leek was the primary flavoring in all the soups, the stews, the pottages, the porees. These are names of old English dishes. That's right. And today, in America certainly, Many people I talk to don't even know what the thing is. Huh. They go to Whole Foods and they need that little sign that says, "Similar to onion, but milder." <laughs> and, and yet, if they were reference right. to the onion, and yet if they were to eat a dish that where leek is an integral part of the flavoring, as you say, it, it's that it's that melding flavor that's in so many dishes. Mm-hmm. And if it were left out, they would they would notice would something was it. left out, right? They would miss it, but they but don't it really know what is it is. In more English dishes, I think, than hmm. American. Hmm. I may be wrong, but I don't think so. In England, certainly in the parts of England, the Celtic parts, so on mm-hmm. the coast, the leek is hugely popular. And English cooks, I think, are much more familiar with leeks than American cooks are, by and large. Well, it came to represent all kinds of symbols. I mean, uh, ancient warriors would put them, put leeks on their helmets. Um, I know, you know, it's like picture I mean, it, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Although it might actually have been a daffodil. They're not quite sure. Oh, okay. The leek and the daffodil are in the same family. Oh. And so there are some people who say it makes more sense to believe that we're talking about a Welsh battle where St. David, yes. the patron yes. saint of Wales, instructed his warriors to put whatever the, however you translate it, a, a daffodil or a leek in their helmets so that they could distinguish themselves from the enemy. And the leek is the emblem of Wales to this day. It's on the euro, I believe, of um, the one that comes from Wales. I, believe. Mm. I think it's still on there. <laughs> the leek is very much the symbol of, of Wales. Well, so many of the words that that we've have adopted in or adapted actually in the English language are clearly euphemistic as well. Um, you know, we have uh, you gave a, a, a terrific example of um, sweetbreads, for instance. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, now you're in the world of meat, and that's yes, where we're, we've yes. really come into their own. Yes, because much as we eat meat, we don't really like to think what it is we're putting into our bodies. That's right. Hence when the supermarket cellophane packages, right? <laughs> You'd never know those things came from animals. When I was a kid, I think I read about this in the book. When I was a kid, I was uh, very squeamish. I wouldn't eat anything that looked like it was when it was alive. Mm-hmm. So it couldn't have a bone. It couldn't be a Cornish game hen. Forget it. No chance. A lamb chop. Forget it. It had to be. It had to have no relationship whatsoever. Ground, no beef, ground beef was okay, huh? Ground beef was okay. I didn't know about the health concerns that, that uh, plague it today. <laughs> so then ground beef was okay, or, you know, chicken patty was okay, but forget it if it had a bone. And supermarkets, I think, support that idea. Right. The word meat does as well when you think about it. It used to be that the word for meat centuries ago was um, fleisch, mm-hmm. flesh. In German today, the word for meat is ja, fleisch. And that was the English word as well. 
it sounds terrible today. Imagine it. Flesh loaf, I often say, sounds horrible. Um, flesh balls, you know, imagine. Yeah, yeah, flesh you know, balls. You, it's like, it's, you, don't, you shudder. You don't even want to think about it. Flesh and balls it and was, wet flour. Know, it was right? terrible. <laughs> it was maybe 1300, 1400 that the words started to shift to meat. And that's interesting because previously the word meat had referred to all food. It wasn't animal flesh. Mm-hmm. It was all food. And this is a semantic so, shift that, that I had referred to earlier. Where Yes, okay. there were a lot of these. And so English speakers started calling edible animal tissue meat. Or, th- or, the, or the things that were supposed to be eaten, right, as we considered it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so that if you look at Scandinavian languages, the word for food is still meat, mat. That words like that, related, cognates. Hmm. So English only shifted its meat vocabulary. It also brought in all the French words for the things you eat and kept the old English words for the animal when it's still alive. Interesting. So yeah. we really like to separate the living animal from the thing that's on your plate that you're putting into your body. We right. want those two words separate as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Interesting. As you and said, that was challenged when I was invited to that pig picking. I'll bet pig and pork yeah. and cow and and beef. It, yes, quite a quite a shift, quite a difference. Well, um, I think that it's it's interesting that the sources that you go to for your research. It was it's wonderful because there were so many of the sources that, as a culinary historian, of course, you know, I, I'm very familiar with, and we go to for um, a lot of the writings to mm-hmm. to research things. And yet, you also brought, but you brought in. Everything from all different periods and all different areas, as well as you go back from to Roman histories and and Pliny. You do Bible translations, as well as modern day writings like Frank Bruni, even um, again for for a pig or a pork roast, and and Julia Child, as you mentioned before. And I love that that you really combine your sources to to really illustrate how our language tells us so much about the food. Well, thank and you. And vice versa. Sir. Yeah. Well, Thank you. I often think that there's a continuum and that a lot of people look at culinary historians, as you said earlier in the show, and they think, well, I want to eat the food. I don't want to read about the food. <laughs> Some people do that with academic study or history. I don't want to read those things. But to my mind, there's a continuum. People have always had to eat. They have always written about food. They have always talked about it. They've included it in their poetry, in their religious texts. Think how much of religious symbolism is based on food. That's right. Right. You know, whether it's fruit in Eden, and what was that fruit? Uh, bread and wine. These things are huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, to my mind, all of these things come together to create our associations to these foods today, and we're not always even aware of that. That's right. And that's what intrigues me so much. I say we eat with our eyes how, how things are decorated on the plate, but the words tell us so much more about the food as well. And, and again, our attitudes, as you mentioned, our attitudes towards food. One thing that I, I don't know if you know the answer, and, and probably in your research you've come across it, why the English and the Americans depart on on some of the words. For instance, we refer to the purple vegetable as eggplant, mm-hmm. the nightshade, eggplant, whereas the the English still keep the word aubergine, the French. Mm-hmm. And the same with, a, a, we use zucchini from the Italian, and they keep courgette. Right, and they do that with a number of vegetables. Yeah, there are several things that, that I, can, I can think about. Too. They call what we call snow peas. They call mange too, mm-hmm. which is French for eat the whole thing, which mm-hmm. When you think about it, it's what you it's do. It's what you do, right? Right, right. You don't have to shell it. You eat the whole thing. Right. The English um, 
as much as they love their English words, they're also in love with French. We have, in the book, I call it our split personality. We're very proud of our own words. On the other hand, we tend to think that the French do it better. They're more refined. They're fancier. And that language is just so beautiful. A lot of English people, I think, are sort of daunted by other languages, especially French. And, and they're Italian. closer. <laughs> they're closer, right. right. Um, and so they love those French names, courgette, aubergine, things like that. The Americans uh, have different tradition with that. So the eggplant, for instance, um, it was there's a, one of the earliest American cookbooks was, I think, the late 18th century, mid to late 18th century, Mary Randolph's The Virginia Housewife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she has a recipe for eggplant, and she just calls it eggplant, which is wonderful. <laughs> it's so straightforward. Apparently, the ones that were grown originally in America were the white variety, and they did look like large eggs. eggs. Somebody referred to them as they have the bigness of a swan's egg. Hmm. So I'm not quite sure how big a swan's egg is, but um, I guess the eggplant was similar to that. So there was no aubergine that ever came over to America. They saw this white one, and it was simply called what it looked like, an eggplant. Eggplant, yes. Well, so it makes a lot of sense. Perhaps more people would like eggplant if we called it aubergine. You think? <laughs> Who knows? But it's, it stands to reason that so much of the food words uh, were derived also um, when they were changed by the way they looked and, and the shape. Um, and you yes. made reference to, like, pineapple. It looked like a pine cone, but it was... You know, well, that's another story. That's related to what you're saying, but there's another element in there that mm. apple, in pineapple, and in so many things, we don't think of like the pomegranate, for mm-hmm. instance. When you think that P-O-M-E is like the French pomme, pomme. P-O-M-M-E, it's apple. A lot of fruits and vegetables are named after the apple. And you think, why? Well, in English, the only fruit tree really that grew was the apple tree. So that the word had a big... It, had a, it referred to a lot of things, apples or anything, really. You'd get some new, unfamiliar-looking, edible plant, and you tended to name it after the apple, hmm. So, which is why in, in French, a potato, pomme de terre. Pomme de terre. Potato yeah. is not related to the apple. And it's kind of round. It's, it's not even round. <laughs> no, and in German, it's an earth apple, or pomodoro in Italian uh-huh. is a golden apple. Golden apple, apple. Right. Golden apple. Here's an interesting one. In, we're talking eggplants. In Italy, the word for eggplant is melanzana. Melanzana, right. That mala is apple in Italian, and insana is insanity. The apple of insanity, because it came from a toxic plant, the, the nightshade, nightshade family. Right. So they, called, they were worried about that eggplant, and they called it an apple of insanity. So the insanity part is <laughs> fun, and so is the apple part. Lots and lots of words named after. Well, it is, as I said before, a delightful read, and I I really recommend anyone who is in love with words and in love with food should take a look at this book because it, it is delightful and it's insightful, and it tells us so much about who we are through the language. And Ina, I thank you once again for sharing all your information with us. And Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed our conversation. Good, and I look forward to hearing more about Words to Eat By. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I've been your host, Linda Palaccio.
This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. There's a lot of posturing and talking around raw milk these days and how great it is. But if you really want to get a full-on investigation into the pros and cons, the risks and benefits of raw milk consumption, here's a nifty website, www.realrawmilkfacts.com. It has a laundry list of FAQs, along with information from studies and reports from American and European science communities. If you flirt with raw milk consumption, this is definitely worth taking a look at. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Every spring at the end of kidding season, goat dairies across the country are faced with the question of what to do with their male bucklings. Because on a dairy farm, there's no role for a male. Often the most economical thing for these farmers to do is to cull the animals at birth or ship them off to the commodity market. Heritage Foods USA is embarking on a new project, No Goat Left Behind, looking to step in and fill this niche by creating a marketplace for these male bucklings. Visit us at www.heritagefoodsusa.com to learn more and to reserve your goat this coming October.